0: It is good to see you all this morning. As Alan said, we're starting into a new series. We're going to go through this through November, and we're looking at really what, what Jesus has said about himself throughout the book of John. So we're not going to take John every verse as it goes through like we did with First and 2 Peter. We'd be here for five years doing that. So what we're going to do is we're just going to look at some of the statements that Jesus makes about his identity. You know, He was always interested in what people said about him. Who do they say I am, he says to the disciples. You know, and they're given all kinds of answers that they hear. And then he says, who do you say I am? And then they respond. Now, Jesus is going to tell us simply as he interacts with people, we're going to get a good grasp of his identity, of, of who he is and what he does in life. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the book of John. It's in the New Testament. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the first four books there. They're called the Gospel. And they tell the life story of Jesus. And so in the book of John, chapter 4, we're going to begin with that. But before we do that, one of my favorite stories that I've I've heard and I've read comes about a a gentleman in World War II, and it's recorded in one of Max Lucado's books called Stories from the Heart. And in this story, Max is recounting the love of, of a soldier and a young lady back in the States. Let me begin by by just reading a little bit of what he has to say. John Blanchard, he stood up from the bench, he straightened his army uniform, and he studied the crowd of people making their way through Grand Central Station in New York City. He looked for the girl whose heart he knew, but whose face he didn't, the girl with the rose. His interest in her had begun 13 months before in a Florida library. Taking a book off the shelf, he found, he intrigued, himself intrigued. He he not only with the words of the book, but with the notes that were penciled in the margins. Now, the soft handwriting reflected a very thoughtful soul and an insightful mind. And in front of the book, he discovered that the previous owner's name was written there, and her name was Miss Hollis Maynell. Well, with time and effort, he finally located her address, She lived in New York City, and he wrote her a letter introducing himself and inviting her to correspond with him. The next day, he was shipped overseas in service for World War II. Now, during the next year and one month, the two of them grew to know each other through the mail as they would write each other, and each letter was like a seed falling into a fertile heart, and a romance began to bud. During that time, Blanchard requested a photograph, but she refused. She felt that if he really cared, it wouldn't matter what she looked like. So then, when the day finally came for him to return from Europe, they scheduled their first meeting at 7 p.m. in Grand Central Station in New York. And it said, you'll recognize me, she wrote, by the red rolls I'll be wearing on my lapel. So at 7 p.m., he was in the station looking for a girl whose heart he loved, but whose face he had never seen. And then Max says, I'll let Mr. Blanchard tell you how the story goes. And so these are his own words recounting that event there at Grand Central Station. So he said, a young woman was coming toward me. Her figure was long and slim and her blonde hair lay back in curls and from her delicate ears and her eyes were blue as flowers her lips and chin had a gentle firmness and in her pale green suit she was like springtime coming alive I started toward her entirely forgetting to notice that she was not wearing a rose and as i moved a small provocative smile curved her lips "'Going my way, sailor?' she murmured. Almost uncontrollably, I made one step closer to her, and then I saw Mrs. Hollis, Miss Hollis Maynell. She was standing almost directly behind the girl, a woman well past 40, She had graying hair tucked under a worn hat, and she was more than plump. Her thick-ankled feet were thrust into low-heeled shoes, and the girl in the green suit was walking quickly away, and I felt as though I was split in two. So keen was my desire to follow her, and yet so deep was my longing for the woman whose spirit I had truly companioned with and who upheld me. There she stood. Her pale, plump face was gentle and sensible. Her gray eyes had warm and kindly twinkle, and I did not hesitate. My fingers gripped a small, worn, blue leather copy of the book that was to identify me to her, and this would not be love, but it would be something precious, something perhaps even better than love, a friendship for which I had been and must ever be grateful. Then he said, I squared my shoulders. And I saluted and held out the book to the woman, even though while I spoke, I choked back the bitterness of my disappointment. I'm Lieutenant John Blanchard, and you must be Miss Maynell. I'm so glad we can meet me today. May I take you to dinner? The woman's face broadened into this tolerant smile. Well, I don't know what this is about, son, she answered. But the young lady in the green suit who just went by, she begged me to wear this rose on my coat, and and she said, if you were to ask me out to dinner, I should go and tell you that she is waiting for you in the big restaurant across the street. She said it was some kind of a test. Now, here's the absolute truth about Jesus Christ as we read in Scripture. And Isaiah chapter 53, verses 2 and 3 gives us this description of him. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of the dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid it as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. So why does every picture that we have of Jesus look like Brad Pitt or something? You know, he's got the beard and the good looks and the blue eyes and just that, that, that draws us to him. We'd say everything we see, it appears that Jesus is this good-looking man, so to speak. I mean, at least that's how we get this image of him. But when we read Scripture, Isaiah says there is nothing about his parents that would want to make us take a second look, except, my goodness... And I have not yet seen a picture that's been presented that identifies Jesus that way. You see, I think it's easier to love and worship beautiful people. And I'm sure that the picture that Lieutenant John Blanchard had in his mind probably matched the beautiful blonde more than the other woman, even if she had the twinkle in her eye. The Jews, they were expecting a Messiah. They have been anticipating him for thousands of years now, and and those who have rejected Jesus are still waiting for their Messiah to come into this world. The Samaritans, they had a similar religious history. Jacob, or Israel, as he was called by God, was their father as well, and there was this expectation of a Messiah to come. And so here's where we come into our story today where both Jews and the Samaritans are looking for a Messiah, and Jesus just happens to appear on the scene. So if you have your Bibles, in John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, we're going to read down to verse 30. Just kind of lay the story out before you. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, a little side note, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and he departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and so Jesus Wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. So it's around noon, basically, during that day. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone way into the, the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, Now, how is it that you... A Jew, ask me a drink of. You, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. For Jews, they have no dealings with the Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, You're right in saying that you have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. And Jesus answered her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father." The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He he was called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. And they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or, Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. You see, in verse 25, we see that the woman of the well is familiar with the coming of Messiah. She knows all about the promises of the Old Testament, that that God is sending his his Messiah into this world. But she had never seen him, she never knew what he looked like, and she had no idea that the man standing in her presence was actually him. The Apostle John even throws in this little aside comment, when he he uses the word Christ or Christos. And it's an English translation of the, the Greek word Christos so we just we use that same word we speak of him as Christ and she used the word messiah which in the hebrew is another transliteration as well messiah is his name he is messiah but words essentially they both mean the same thing whether you say christ or you say messiah they mean the anointed one in other words jesus is the one that is chosen by god to save the world from their sins to redeem all mankind if they're willing to follow him. So he is the Messiah, the one who has been promised to the children of Israel. He is a fulfillment of all the prophecies. But even though both Samaritans and Jews had the scripture picture of this anointed one, Jesus wasn't the picture of what they had hoped for. I guess he wasn't Brad Pitt, right? Well, let me ask you, do you think the woman who came to that well, to Jacob's well that day, thought that she might run into the Messiah? I highly doubt it. Matter of fact, she was coming at noon, at the hottest part of the day, when normally the women would go early in the morning before the sun was there and began to get warm and get hot. But she was kind of ostracized because, after all, she's had a lot of husbands and she's living with men, so there's something about her past that's not too hot. Holy. In John chapter 4, verse 9, we see that the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. They, they did not get along. And In verse 25, Jesus, she tells Jesus that she knows about the Messiah, and she even sounds very confident in the promise coming of him. But this isn't how she expects it. That's totally different than what she thought that would happen. Messiahs don't have anything to do with Samaritan women, do they? Messiahs don't get tired and ask for water, do they? This one does. But everyone knows that Messiahs, they come with armies, right? Messiahs, they, they, they're majestic, they're tall, they're good-looking, they're, they're, they're above all, especially her station in life. Messiahs, they like good people and they hate bad people, right? I mean, isn't that what he's supposed to be? And the reason that the Pharisees rejected Jesus is simply because of this as well. Because the establishment of that day hated Jesus because he wasn't the Messiah that they were looking for. He was somebody totally different than who they had painted within their minds' eye. Mike Iaconelli, he writes uh, in a book called Messy Spirituality, he says, according to his critics, Jesus did God all wrong. He went to the wrong places, he said the wrong things, and worst of all, he let just anyone into the kingdom. Jesus scandalized an intimidating elitist country club religion by opening membership in the spiritual life to those who had been denied it. And he says... What made people furious was Jesus' irresponsible habit of throwing open the doors of his love to the whosoever's, the first any one's, and the not a chancer's like you and me. You see, the Pharisees believed that they were the guardians of the door to heaven and to the kingdom of God, and Jesus does not fit their mold. He's not who they wanted. He wasn't anything like them. And they got really good at throwing people out who didn't fit their mold. Now, Philip Yancey, in his book, Vanishing Grace, he says that that sums up the view of how almost half of the 16 to 30-year-olds view Christianity today. It doesn't fit their mold. And so they don't want to be a part of it. And then he uses an example of a daughter of a famous atheist, Bertrand Russell, She says that her father's whole life was a search for God. She said, somewhere in the back of my father's mind, at the bottom of his heart, in the depths of his soul, and he never found anything else to put in it, was this empty space that had once been filled with God. But nothing in the world could fill it, and he didn't look for it. In Bertrand Russell's own words, this is what he said. There is darkness without, and when I die, there will be darkness within. Is that the kind of life that we want? A life that is just filled with darkness, that there's no light in it? And isn't it amazing that Jesus says he's the light of the world? And he breaks through that darkness even in our hearts when we don't see the reality of who he is. So what kept him from faith? His daughter mentions one one reason she believes. She said, I would have liked to have convinced my father that I found what he had been looking for, the ineffable something he had longed for all his life. I would have liked to persuade him that the search for God does not have to be in vain, but it was hopeless. He had known too many blind Christians, bleak moralists who sucked the joy from life and persecuted their opponents And he never would have been able to see the truth that they were hiding. And she says, basically, what summarizes what she says is that the reason her father really never saw Jesus and never searched out God and found him was because he looked at us.
1: And we were
0: not the picture of what Christ would want us to be either. So Philip Yancey says something that I agree with wholeheartedly. I mean, he says that human beings instinctively seek two things. We long for meaning, a sense that our life somehow matters, and we long for community, a sense of being loved. I think I agree with him. But Jesus answers both those needs. And for the Samaritan woman, and for every single one of us, he gives our life purpose. He gives us community. He gives us everything that we need. But we just got to turn to him. And sadly, a lot of us in the church don't show that to those around the world, do we? We don't demonstrate that there really is this, this fulfilling of all of our needs in Jesus Christ. According to the Barna Group Research Institute, this was done in 2019, 64% of today's youth in the United States who have been in the church at one point in their life have left, and they're now spiritually disengaged. They have no connection to a church. Now, that breaks my heart. When I think about it, think about this. Your kids who are growing up in our church today... All that mass of children who walk down that hall to their their children's program. Barna is saying by his research, 64% of them, when they leave their parents' house, will walk away from the church. We've got to change that. We've got to make a difference. We've got to introduce them truly to the one who is Messiah, the one who can... Restore the hope in their hearts for life that's everlasting. You see, I think the United States is undergoing a marked change in, 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 in how we live and the things that we do and our attitudes towards religions and Christians. I think we're facing new challenges. Now, if that was in 2019 when that research was done, we've now gone through a pandemic where a lot of people have been alienated from society and they hold themselves up and they don't want to gather in groups and in churches and things. And I wonder what that's going to be like for our kids as they grow up. What kind of connection will they have to Christ? The picture of the Messiah, which many lift up as an example to the world, looks nothing like the servant king that we encounter in Scripture. Jesus said this in John chapter 12, verses 32 and 33. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. But what's the first picture of people in union that they get from looking at us about Jesus? Is it going to be attractive? Or is it going to be somebody that they don't really want to look at or be around? Because in all honesty, sometimes we're the only Jesus that they will see and how we relate the good news to them. Much of the world, especially our children, our grandchildren, the youth group that graduate, look at the picture of Jesus that is this church holds up. So how are we displaying Jesus? That's a good question. How can we become like Jesus and reach people that that he reached, like the woman of Samaria that he met there at the well? Because she knew, you're a Jew. I can tell by your language. And yet you're talking to me, a Samaritan? And not only a Samaritan, but a woman? It goes against all their cultural and all the religious things because the Jews saw the Samaritans as sellouts. When the kingdom was divided... They married other people who were Canaanites and they became sellouts to the faith of God. We need to meet people face to face and speak to them. The Quakers, early religious movement that came into the United States even before it was the United States, they were searching for religious liberty. They made this statement, an enemy is one whose story we have not heard. Because once you know their story, they really aren't an enemy any longer. They become a friend. And so Jesus challenges his followers to listen to the story of people's lives and then to offer them a free drink from God's grace that will quench their soul. And I'll tell you what, as one has drunk deeply from that grace, there's enough to go around for everybody else. And we need to offer it to a world who is dying of thirst so that they don't ever have to worry about it. Now think back to the day when you were on the verge of accepting Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. I mean, this was awesome. It was awesome for a father to baptize his daughter. You know? Think about that moment. If you can go back when you surrendered your life to Christ, and you're on the verge of doing that, What did you think about Jesus? I mean, did your heart burn to get to know him more? And thinking that now all of a sudden life is going to change forever? I mean, did you feel God's presence getting closer and closer and making it the most joyous day of your life when he saved you? I think maybe that gives us a little bit of sense of what's going through this woman's mind as she's discovering something about this man who's there at the well, who's begun this conversation with her about thirst and about water. And all of a sudden, it twists and turns, and now he's exposing everything in her life. And then she's discovering there's something about him that is totally different than any other man I've ever met. And it goes into her thought, I know that Messiah is coming. Maybe this is him. And so she brings the topic of Messiah up. And maybe this man is the Messiah himself. And when she begins to talk about that, what does he respond? I am. I am. In our text in John chapter 4, there are some real answers that are given there in verse 25. He says, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. But when he comes, he's going to tell us all things. She believed the Messiah was coming. And in fact, the original manuscript of the Bible, the Greek word that she used means coming soon, as if he's already left the house and he's on his way there. That's what the word actually means. Not that he's just coming. It means he's left and he's on his way and he's going to be here any moment. And she recognized that there's going to be any moment that the Messiah is going to walk into this world. Now, are you ready for that as well? Because it's the same kind of terminology that is used when we know that he's coming again. And so the disciples and the people of that day were anticipating the return of Jesus. Matter of fact, when he ascended into heaven, his disciples, they're staring up in the sky going, where'd he go? Is He coming back. Till the angel said, yeah, he's coming back. But you guys got to go get busy. Go do what he told you to do. And he'll come back. Now, in Samaria, they didn't believe in most of the Old Testament books because they got mad at the Jews that were left. But they did use the first five books of the Old Testament. They call them the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And that was their Bible. That was their book that they read and they studied and they looked at. And even in those passages of, of, of the Old Testament, there are things about the coming of Messiah. So let me throw out a few of them for you. In Genesis 3.15, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will, crush, he will bruise your head and you shall crush his heel. Now that's God speaking to Satan and Adam and Eve, and he's communicating because of his displeasure of the sin that they had just done by eating of that tree. And he introduces this thought. One of these days, there's going to be a child born in this world, and he is going to destroy sin forevermore. Right there in Genesis chapter 3, we've got the beginning thoughts and statements about a coming Messiah. Then you go to Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, and it says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. There's going to be a kingdom established, and this king, the scepter, is never going to leave his hand. He's going to be an eternal king. And in Numbers 24, 17, he says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. And a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and it shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Messiah is coming, and we know where he's coming from. He's coming from the tribe of, of Jacob. He's coming from that family. He's going to come out of here, and he's going to live, and he's going to rule, and he's going to govern. And then Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. Now, what's the second thing that she made a statement about this Messiah? We know that He's coming, but she said that there in verse 25. When He comes, what? He's going to tell us all things. Everything we need to know, He's going to communicate with us. All these things. And so the point is, the woman did not deny that there is a Messiah. She believed in His coming and the authority of Messiah. However, her belief was not an eternal saving belief, not a belief of commitment, So I asked, her, what do I mean by that? Not a, a belief of commitment. She only had a mental or an intellectual understanding, a belief of knowledge, not one of relationship. She believed that there was a Messiah, but not that he was open to a personal faith and would change her life as well. Most everybody has heard about Jesus in America good or bad, they know about the claims that have been made about him. And we understand that there is Jesus. Very few people will say they've never heard the word or understood a thing about God. But there are people in our world that have never, honestly never, heard about God or heard about Jesus a guy that I went through seminary with in, in Illinois, he, he was from Chicago. He Growing up on the streets of Chicago, he thought Jesus was just a cuss word. He did not know he was a man. A doctor I met over in Ukraine that traveled the world from the country of Georgia had never had a conversation with anybody about God, that there was a God, until we sat down and talked. There are people in our world who have no idea that there is a God And his son has come into this world. But in America, most everybody knows about it. See, when we think about this Messiah, in John 4.26, Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. And so he makes three claims, basically, in in this dialogue with her. The first one is this. He claims to be Messiah. Messiah is thought to be the leader of David's line, who's going to come and rule the people of Israel. and a matter of fact, he's going to bring redemption to the whole world. Militarily, the Messiah was to be this great military leader who would lead the Jewish armies victoriously all over the world. And religiously, the Messiah was to be the supernatural figure straight from God who would bring righteousness to this world. And personally, the Messiah was to be the one who would bring peace to the whole world since he is the anointed one and the Prince of Peace. But the second claim is this. He claimed to be, I am. That's what he made that statement. Who is I am? Well, it's not Popeye the Sailor Man, is it? I am what I am. No. When Moses was on the mountain with God and God's telling him, you need to go back to Egypt and tell the people that I'm going to redeem them. I'm going to free them from the oppression that they've had all these years and I've heard their cries. And he says, yeah, well, who am I supposed to tell them sent me? And God says, I am. And when Jesus makes the statement, I am, he is proclaiming himself to be God. God. And he also claimed to be the supreme one, this this one with supreme authority who would tell the woman all things that he he claimed what he told her about herself was true. And and she needs to take care of her sin. And as a response, she's then going to come and worship him in spirit and in truth rather than just because, well, we worship on this mountain and you worship in Jerusalem on that mountain. We should know Jesus so well that we introduce others to him as our closest companion. But the world debates that issue so much. Now, when Jesus returns, and I'm looking forward to that, I just think it'd be great if it were today. I said that last week, and he didn't come last Sunday. But wouldn't it be great if he came while we're sitting here, and we get ready to sing in just a few minutes. Wouldn't it be great if he came while we're singing? I think it'd be awesome. But when he comes, he's not going to be concerned about arguments. He's not going to be concerned about that, 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 that he's won because he's going to come with a concern to judge people for their righteousness and their wickedness. So I wonder what our response would be like like the woman, if we would come to this well that he offers of of living water and if we were to drink of it. Our, Our response after drinking from his well of living water, look at John 4, 28 through 29. The woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Can this be Christ? And so her witness was exemplified in everything. I mean, it was amazing. As she began to proclaim Jesus was the Messiah, she left her water jar. The thing that she went there to get the water for, she left it there at the well and ran back into town and was so excited about that that she began to tell people about it. The Messiah had confronted her and she knew that he knew everything about her and exposed the reality of her heart. And so now she's going to introduce other people to him. Now, I want you to note the strength of her witness. She had been an outcast from society, and she avoided being around in groups because they would talk about her, probably bully her, probably tease her, whatever it was. She really had no friends, most likely, because of her immoral life that Jesus pointed out. But meeting the Messiah changed all that. You see, because he had dealt with her sin and her shame. And now she was changed, and she could now face everyone because they too should have an opportunity to meet this man who can change their lives. I think it's a great witnessing tool for us to introduce people to Jesus by showing him how he has changed my life what he has done to make me different than the way i was before i understood who he truly was. And so, in John chapter 4 verse 30, this story kind of ends right here, but it goes on with the disciples and stuff, but i want to stop it right at this point. It says "So what happens is a response of her going back to town and telling people that she thinks that she has met the Messiah, the Christ, and he's told her everything about herself. What's it say? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Now that's the response. Now, I want to note just a couple things and we'll close. The woman who had no social importance, not to others, but but even women especially, had no social importance to men in that city. She had often probably been misused and been the subject of gossip and jokes, and something had happened to her. She had met Jesus and it changed her, even her appearance so that they listened to her. So much had it changed her that when she went up to them and said something and told them where she met him, they don't just blow her off. There was something different about this woman, so they headed out to the well themselves to go see him. There was something unique about this. And so the people responded, at least a good number of them, because it talks about the town. Almost all the people of town, they headed out there and went to go meet with him. But that word that is used here for they were coming to him describes a long procession of people. Now, if you've ever driven from Washington to the Union on a Friday at 5 o'clock in the evening, that's my picture. It is nonstop. They're just making this row of people heading out to see Jesus. They're all coming out in a line of procession to see him because she has told them about him. And this is why I think that we should be filled with joy when we communicate with other people about Jesus because they will see the transition in our lives and in our faith and in our words that they'll want to go and discover him too. Now, in two weeks, we've got... It's back to church Sunday. Who are you going to tell that you've met Jesus? The Messiah, the one who has sent from heaven to earth to change things. S.I. McMillan in his book, None of These Diseases, tells a story of a young woman who wanted to go to college, but her heart sank when she read the questions on the application blank that, that asked, are you a leader? So being both honest and conscientious, she wrote, no, I'm not a leader. And she returned the application expecting the worst. But to her surprise, she received a letter from the college, and this is what it said. Dear applicant, a study of the application forms reveals that this year our college will have." 1,452 new leaders. We are accepting you because we feel it is imperative that they have at least one follower. If Jesus really is Messiah, are you willing to follow him? Are you willing to tell others so they can follow him? That's the question we have.